we like certainty. This is why people make stuff up, why we sometimes have really biased decision-making, because we'd rather make stuff up and be certain about it than sit with unknowing. My name is Katarina, and I'm the Community and Event Manager at Eculture, a company that is on a mission to shape the world of unbiased hiring. Welcome to the Oops, I'm Biased podcast. On today's episode of the Oops, I'm Biased podcast, I am speaking to Chris Marshall. He is a UK-based professional futurist and uncertainty scientist, and we are going to talk about global challenges for businesses and for recruitment specifically and how these challenges and changes affect our decision-making. He is a coach and expert on dealing with stress and uncertainty in the workplace, so we're going to cover the science behind how our brain deals with uncertainty, how stress affects our well-being and decision-making, how the global challenges that enterprises face this year affect decision-making and processes, how habitual thinking and bias affect the recruitment process, and what recruitment leaders can do to combat decision-making fueled by stress and uncertainty. I hope that you take away a lot from this conversation. I'm also going to link the resources that Chris Marshall shared with us in the show notes, so please go and check them out. We also talk a lot about biases, so please go back to previous episodes if you want to have a little more of a deep dive into specific biases that affect the recruitment process. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Chris Marshall. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Chris Marshall. He is joining me today on the podcast to talk all about um, bias and the future of work. Uh, this is quite a big topic. It's been uh, quite a few weeks in the making. I'm very excited to talk about what the future of work means for us, how that creates a little bit of uncertainty for all of us and how we deal with it in the recruitment uh, sphere. Chris Marshall, very warm welcome to you. Uh, Happy to have you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. You are a professional futurist and an uncertainty scientist. Uh, I would love for you to explain a little bit what that means and how these two uh, connect, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good place to start. So uh, essentially, the uncertainty scientist was kind of a nickname that I I kind of earned or was given um, because my life kind of spans two different sides of what I think is the same coin. On the one hand, as a professional futurist, I'm obviously looking at how the world's changing. And that could be things like trends and megatrends. And then the other side of my life, my background is a behavioral scientist and also kind of an executive coach. And what I think is missing is kind of bringing those two fields together because there's kind of, I I have this phrase, there's very little point understanding change if you can't cope with it. And so the uncertainty scientist, that nickname kind of came about because when we're talking about massive disruption, whether that's coming from emerging technologies or whether it's coming from a global order change or a natural environment change, essentially disruption is the same as uncertainty to us because it's a disruption is saying there is something new tomorrow which isn't here today. Um, and so when we start looking at that, as, as I'm sure our conversation will go into, lots of things happen cognitively, behaviorally, 
um, how we relate to each other, how we think, how well we can be creative and cooperative. Um, we start talking about stress mechanisms. And essentially in those environments, the, the one of the big things is that our decision-making can become very biased. Um, and we can also kind of foster very stressful relationships and workplaces, um, which ironically don't lead to necessarily the best outcomes for staff. We can generate toxic workplaces, and I'm sure we'll go into kind of diversity and inclusion, and and um, and that's really important from that point of view as well. So the uncertainty scientist is, was kind of this big uh, overarching umbrella to try and encapsulate these two sides of, as I said, what I think is the same coin, navigating change and understanding change better. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense as I hear you explain it that the the future side well drives a lot of that feeling of uncertainty so then the behavioral science is is where those two meet uh thank you for that introduction um i want to start off a bit general and then let's let's dive into a few of the challenges that we see within the recruitment world on the one well first off uh, i'd love to hear from you a little bit uh, around the science um as it pertains to how our brain deals with uncertainty yeah, so, so uncertainty is kind of, um, where, where do we start with this? It's probably one of the best kind of stories or kind of um, ways I try to explain this with people is to go back. And, and when I say go back, I mean, I go back kind of 250,000 years um, because it's an evolutionary response to uncertainty. That That's, you know, I kind of very much on that side of, of the fence that our wiring, the way that we are set up, the way our body is set up to actually understand what's going on is a very, very good and accurate way to deal with acute stress. So 250,000 years ago, let's just go all the way back there. Um, you know, you, you and me, we, maybe we kind of lived in caves, we would have come out. And if there was any sign of uncertainty outside that cave, let's say there was an unfamiliar smell on the air, or there was an unfamiliar rustle in the grass, or there was a, an unfamiliar tribesman kind of walking towards us. All of those would be really, really good cues for our body to go, you should be hyper aware, you should be on alert, you should be in a more energized state, and you should be less kind of abstract, complative, kind of all of these kind of creative thinking styles that we have. Those don't really serve you. In that situation, what serves you is habitual thinking, rigid thinking. Uh, you know, if if you're kind of using that stress response, we often talk about fight and flight. Um, and that was the world that our biology, our physiology, and psychology is rooted in. But what happened, of course, is the environment completely changed. Um, you know, today we still have uncertainty but it's normally not acute stresses, or at least not stresses which are immediately life-threatening to us. But that's how we still respond. So you and me perhaps get an email which is like, I, I don't know, like saying our work is rubbish or, or just kind of being really aggressive towards us. We have the same response as when we walked out of that cave, but it actually requires a very, very different response from us individually. If we kind of go down the fight or flight response, either we just go, okay, I quit my job, or we go, well, I'm going to take up a fight with this individual. 
Well, lots of people do that, but it doesn't normally lead to a very good outcome. And so uncertainty, you know, kind of when we're talking about that today, we've got to both understand how we respond to it from an evolutionary point of view and why we are con almost continually triggered in a modern world. Because, you know, you step outside your house today, we've exchanged the cave for a house. Um, and you kind of look around and you go, okay, well, we've got this changing, you know, at the moment we're recording this in July 23 and it's, it's, you know, we've got economic uncertainty. We've got technological uncertainty. We, we have a kind of cultural philosophy on the move. We have global orders on the move. Um, and there's so much uncertainty there. I often talk about this now it's It's more like this kind of background static. Um, a lot of the things which cause us these for this stress response to come online, it's not necessarily stressed out. We're not walking outside the house going, oh my word, I can't cope. We're walking out the house going, this is unfamiliar and disorientating. And it's kind of this background static that we're not very aware of. Um, so yeah, uncertainty to our brains as an organism, you know, let's kind of take it from that stance, is a threat to us. Um, we like certainty. This is why people make stuff up, why we sometimes have really biased decision-making because we'd rather make stuff up and be certain about it than sit with unknowing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where uncertainty comes into this. It's a, yeah, it's a big topic. <laughs> it is a big topic, but thank you for that introduction to it. I think it gives quite a, a vivid, uh, well, it paints quite an, a vivid picture in our minds when we think about, okay, this is how we used to be uh, 250,000 years ago, and these mechanisms are still at play. At eCulture, we recently published a report, um, an enterprise trends re report uh, for all of the challenges that the recruitment market is seeing, um, which affects obviously business leaders, but organizations alike <clears throat> in terms of how, um, well, how they're dealing with, with the uncertainty. Uh, I want to quickly um, go through and summarize uh, the the key points that I see here, and then we can go a bit into detail what that what does that mean. And you also alluded to the fact that um, our decision making is is very highly affected in the short term uh, when we feel very stressed. Um, what we see in this report is, on the one hand, there is an economic downturn. I think I don't have to explain to anyone what that means. Uh, budget cuts are everywhere to be seen and they make um, teams' lives really hard as well in recruitment. There's very little budget to um, hire new new team members, but there is an increasing workload um, that can't really be filled. Um, targets are super high, but there is really only a slim, a slim road to, to get there. Uh, on the other hand, we're seeing a lot of um, labor market shortage. So candidates are not applying enough to these roles that, that need to be filled. Um, and then that also affects um, how, how recruiters are meeting their targets. And then, um, which is, I think we're going to see an increasing um, change in this is the skill shortage that we're seeing in the skill gaps. Because of emerging technologies, there is a high need for new skills um, that candidates possess, but they don't have them yet because, well, they're emerging. Um, so there's a huge gap between what organizations actually require in their employees and what applicants um, can offer. And then lastly, we also see a huge disconnect between 
Um, and you alluded to this earlier as well, that there is a bit of a workplace culture change and also a culture change at large uh, towards um, being more inclusive, um, welcoming to diversity, and then also providing a lot of equity, uh, especially in the workplace. So the DNI values of organizations are held quite high, but they're actually not put into practice in the way that they need to. And that also um, highly affects recruitment and how, well, who's being hired, under which circumstances and what are they what are they finding in terms of an inclusive environment? Um, these are all challenges that recruiters and decision makers at companies um, have to deal with on a daily basis. So I wonder, do you have an answer of how that hinders their decision making? Yeah, I mean, it's probably good to take each of those kind of separately. Um, I think we can probably tackle the first two together. So I think you mentioned kind of the economic background, kind of the economic turmoil, um, and then also kind of labor shortages. So, I mean, kind of let's tackle those two first. Um, absolutely. I don't think anybody needs an explanation of why you're talking about kind of economic downturn. Um, we're at that point in the cycle again. Um, and the, yeah, these times kind of, it links into what we were talking about right at the start about they're disruptive. Disruptive equals uncertainty, and uncertainty equals typically more stress, more anxiety. Um, so, one of the, I mean, let me kind of outline some of the things that I kind of talk with my some of my coaching clients around kind of burnout strategies and overwhelm strategies, because I think those kind of play into this. From the disruption side, for me, it's all about pausing. Um, it sounds ridiculously simple and it is ridiculously simple, but we're taught to do the opposite. Come back to that idea of efficiency and productivity. Um, the enemy of those two seems to be on the surface pausing because pausing is laziness. Pausing is not doing work. Um, but as environments become more disruptive, they actually, there's this paradox and the paradox is you need to step back. I would actually argue it's not just about economic changes. So IBM did a massive study of CEOs in 2010. And the, the one single trend that came out from these 1,500 global CEOs was they were finding the environment to make decisions in more and more chaotic, that the world was just changing in so many diverse ways. Um, and the antidote to that is stepping back. It's not necessarily to say you find the answer, but you keep putting things back in perspective. When you're right in the middle of things, when the chaos is kind of overwhelming you, you can't make good decisions. You're, you're actually not even making decisions with all the information. You need to step back. So that's the, the, the first part. The second part, I think, is actually what employees are doing to pause. I would say that, yes, we've got some structural issues in demographics. So we've got an older generation now retiring, and perhaps COVID sped that up. Um, but we've also got parts of the, the kind of the, the workforce or at least working age population who are choosing to step back. I mean, like completely step out, not just kind of pause, but like, no, I want to check out of this. Um, this isn't for me. I want a more kind of holistic lifestyle. I want to put my wellness above working. And I think both of those challenges are met by organizations and work forces, certainly the managerial kind of layer, understanding stress within the workplace and making it so that 
that that that doesn't rise. It doesn't become a kind of a chronic issue. Um, for me, we're at we're at that kind of pivotal moment in managerial style. I think most of the organisations um, are really still based on an industrial revolution model, where it's about bringing people into the factory as such to pull a lever. Um, that's why we have nine to five. I mean, it's 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 ludicrous. I mean, for me, my best work does not happen at four p.m. or even three p.m. Okay, I'm I'm up early, um, and I do my I do my what I call deep work first thing. Um, thankfully, I can control that. Um, but there are others who work at the other end of the spectrum. This idea of nine to five it's, it's just one example of how we're being very rigid in our approach. And, and as I said, it's for me, it's kind of the origins of that come back to the industrial revolution. So I think organizations need to get a better handle. One of those things is for the decision makers, the leaders, the managers to control their own stress state. So that's where I do an awful lot of work because I think I can bring an awful lot of benefit to an organization if I can get the people at the top to control themselves, they were filters down into everybody else. And you then hopefully get less people stepping out the workforce because they go, actually, I enjoy my work. It's not this just chronic stress place. I don't want to step back. I think the other thing that we've got to add in here is that there is an answer to workplace or kind of labor shortages, and it's a double-edged sword. And that is AI, robotics, machine learning, and computerization. That's coming. I mean, whether whether we disagree or not, it's coming. Um, and it's a double-edged sword from the point of view of, yes, it'll solve the, the kind of the near-term issue, but it's also going to cause more disruption, which we go back into uncertainty and reskilling and everything else. Um, I think the reskilling thing fits nicely into this, is that when you actually create an, uh, an environment, a working environment, which is not about pure productivity and efficiency, that's not to say that you don't get work done. The irony is that when you don't prioritize those things, your your workforce does more. Um, uh, and when you don't prioritize those things from a pure tick list point of view, you also start to foster an environment where people can be more vulnerable. They can learn more. They can actually come to you. You know, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome and things like that. Um, that's really to me. Uh, an, an issue in managerial style. It's, you know, people don't feel they can talk to their manager because their manager is at the stress rigid place. Essentially, come back to that cave. The manager is in a place where he's just stepped out the cave and seen a lion. You don't want to talk to that person about, oh, I don't feel up to this task or I don't feel I have the skills for this because you're scared already. You feel threatened that there's this kind of this comeback on you that you're going to be seen as a failure as not being good enough, perhaps you should be replaced, you know, all these different things, and which feeds into that. And I think then that comes into this, this diversity and inclusion space. You know, I'm, I'm autistic. Um, I'm high functioning autistic. Um, and I know from personal experience how toxic environments can be detrimental to my decision-making and my style, because it's not the neurotypical style. And so this is the other benefit that I think employees are, are really overlooking. You kind of alluded to that they're doing it on paper, but not in spirit, if I can paraphrase what you said. <laughs> um, and I think that's completely right. It's a tick list at the moment. It's like the company wants to be seen to be doing good. So it goes, yes, we have 
the right portion of men to women of this ethnic minority to that minority. We have the right amount of neurodiverse, but it's no more than, oh yeah, we've got the numbers. Um, What they're missing is every time humanity has made massive leaps forward, it tends to have come from what I'm going to call information revolutions. And information revolutions are where we actually broaden the information pool. We bring in more, more views, more perspectives, more life experience. And guess what happens? I mean, it's no surprise. We suddenly get new ideas. We get, we get new solutions, new breakthroughs. Every single time we've done this, we did this. Um, we could go back to the Egyptian hieroglyphics. We could go to the Gutenberg Press. We could, um, we could go to the telephone. We're now going through another iteration of this with the internet and AI. And workplaces that can really harness that are the ones which allow for open thinking, this kind of this growth mindset, which is the opposite of stress. Stress is rigidity. Stress is closed-mindedness. Stress is habitual thinking. Calm is the opposite. Calm is about having a practicing mindset or a student mindset. It's about not feeling threatened by somebody else's views, even if they go against yours. That's, that's what joy and calm is. And that's what we need to foster, not only to navigate economic turmoil and disruption in the future, or even bring people back into the labor force, but also to harness that diversity and inclusion side. I mean, really kind of get the benefits of diversity and inclusion, not just from a managerial tick list point of view. Yeah, that's such a great summary of all of the all of the points that I mentioned earlier. Um, definitely a lot of talk as well about internal mobility. How can we reskill and upskill our workers um, to fit the organization's needs, but also to fit the individual's needs and expectations to learn more, to grow, right? Because that is really important. Developing as a professional is what keeps well people challenged, what, what keeps sort of the, the rewarding nature of, of a workplace I think that's uh, hugely important. And then last, also what you said about bringing in new perspectives always um, boosts innovation instead of hindering it through stress. I want to quickly put my hook into um, habitual thinking. Habitual thinking um, has quite a detrimental effect the way I view it. And you tell me if that's correct. Um, If we look at uh, recruitment process, um, decision making within any organization. How does habitual thinking actually, what does it look like in practice? Could you give an example of what that exactly means? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's, it's a pretty broad term. Um, so I can give you my definition. <laughs> um, but essentially, habitual thinking is when you just fall into a rigid pattern. That's the way I kind of describe it to people. And, you know, this comes back to, the way to navigate disruption and change is not to be rigid. It's to be flexible. So it's, so what we're talking about when we're talking about flexible thinking or growth mindset is it's the opposite. It's almost like the, there's this phrase which is classed as the most dangerous phrase in human history, which is, I've always done it this way. We love it because coming back to uncertainty or unfamiliarity, I've always done it this way is familiar. It feels safe. It's what we know. It's the well-trodden path. Um, and so it's no wonder that when you're stressed, when, you know, if we take stress as cues of threat or danger, um, then we fall into these patterns, which are the well-trodden paths. 
the habitual thinking, but it's, it's a pretty poor way of making decisions. And if your job is around, if you're employed to make good decisions, just like an athlete is employed to basically perform physically, you know, a lot of managers and CEOs are asked to perform cognitively, um, then habitual thinking is, is really the most fragile style of thinking in a disruptive world. It's absolutely fine when nothing changes. Um, might have worked actually, ironically, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm not saying nothing changed in those, <laughs> in those time periods, but it was a lot smoother than today. Um, so habitual thinking is really where we start bringing in biases, where you start making shortcuts because you and me, we can't take in all the information around us. You know, it's, it's absolutely impossible. We'd be overwhelmed in a fraction of a second if we actually took everything in. Um, and this is where you see all those like funny kind of experiments where people like, can, can have a good laugh at them. Like, I don't know whether you've seen the one where they're playing basketball and a gorilla moves in the background. We're just not taking in all the information. We, we kind of take what we need to or what we think we need to, I, I think is probably more accurate. Um, and when we go into this habitual thinking, which to me is all about kind of the stress response ticking up. So not stressed out, but just highly mobilized, not being completely open. Then this is where we start falling into confirmation bias, anchoring bias, you know, where we're, you know, just to explain those two terms for your listeners, confirmation bias is, is really where you find the answers you were looking for. You just go, oh yeah, look, I was right. I've got this piece of data to back me up. And anchoring is is just the really a, a really lazy way of making a decision. It's like, oh, well, this was the first piece of information or the most significant in the way I see it. And therefore I'm just going to stick to it. Um, and there's loads of really quite cool mental experiments around anchoring bias and people just being given a piece of information, which seems completely irrelevant to the decision. And they, they anchor to it. Um, emotions, heightened emotions and stress have been shown to increase anchoring bias. Um, so yeah, habitual thinking really creeps in as, as, as that stress response ticks up. Um, and it just leads to, to what we'd kind of call counterfactual thinking. Um, it's just not optimal, I guess is, is, is the way, um, the biases can be good. Um, my theory or hypothesis on this is that the, we use biases all the time, heuristics and biases that they are, they allow us to navigate our world. Um, where you find experts using biases and heuristics patterns that they've seen time and time again, it tends to be that they don't fall into the condition of stress. That's my observation. Um, and where you see people become stressed using a bias or heuristic is, is that's when it leads to faulty decision-making or a faulty evaluation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is very much the the stance that we take on this podcast as well. It's not for nothing that it's called Oops, I'm Biased. Um, everyone is biased. We we really can't do anything about that. That is how our brain keeps us alive, how, how it keeps us safe. It's more about having the awareness around um, crucial decision-making and how it, how it affects that decision-making piece. Um, also, I wanted to quickly note that confirmation bias and how it's applied to the recruitment process is our first episode. So if you haven't listened to that, please go back to that one. And anchoring bias will also have come out by the time this one comes out. Um, again, a bit of a deeper dive into how, how it affects um, 
recruitment uh, decision making. Uh, so please also go back to this one if you haven't listened to that yet. Is there anything else where you think that is a practical tip that organizations or individuals who are decision makers at organizations um, can do to either lower their stress or particularly combat habitual thinking and bias? that's creeping in. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, for, so for me, this, this comes back to stress and kind of the reason I concentrate on that is obviously kind of in my, in my work as a behavioral scientist, you're absolutely right. There are, there are hundreds of these biases out there. We keep uncovering more and more of them and it's like, oh, here's another one. Um, and for me, if you want to move from the academic sphere, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that, that all this research is, is not useful. It is. Um, but from a practical point of view, you know, how do you practically check yourself against, I don't know, 270 biases? You don't. I mean, the issue with these things is unlike an optical illusion where you can kind of, once somebody points it out, you're like, oh yeah, it's a frog (laughs) or whatever it might be. Um, the issue with the cognitive bias is (laughs) you have no idea. Even when somebody points it out, we, we often defend the stance. So this is where for me, stress is stress management is the key. Um, because what I can show is, and actually not just through kind of research, but through kind of client coaching communications and programs is that when you reduce that stress, you reduce cognitive error. You don't eradicate it. We never will, but you reduce it because you become more open-minded. And that's the solution to nearly all of these biases is you consider either the opposite or you consider something different. And you can only do that when your biology is in the right place. So this is kind of where, like, I guess the last practical tip I'll kind of give you and your listeners is, is the framework I developed for thinking in fast-paced environments. And I call it the pause, pause, move framework. Most of self-help or business management all focuses on the move. We pay no attention to what we're bringing to the move or very little. So the pause, pause, move. And the reason there's these two pauses is there are two distinct things to do before you make a big decision. The first pause is, is really about stepping back. And for me, it's not just putting something in perspective. That first pause is actually regulating your stress state. So you identify where you are. So I often get clients to kind of identify on a scale of one to five, five being stressed out. I mean, you're like screaming at the walls. Uh, One being you're calm, you're in the shower, you're sat by the beach on holiday. Um, Where are you? And it's really funny, actually, um, that most people are kind of going like, oh, okay, yeah, I think I'm actually like two or three, which, you know, they're, they're, they're alert, they're hyper aware. That's not the starting place for a good decision. It might be a good place to start like rattling through your to-do list or like being on the phone to customers or like answering emails, but it's not a good place to make decisions from. So in that first pause, I get people to learn how to self-regulate their stress state, bring themselves down to level one, where they can suddenly access what I call calm intelligence. And there is, there is something about being calm that we have access to areas of our of our memory, of our cognition, which just are completely unavailable to us at higher states. Once you've managed to do that, you can start seeing solutions to problems which before were just, just unsolvable. You start to get different ideas coming through. The second pause is then about a remobilization. 
because while becoming more like Zen Buddhist in your thinking style is really good for abstract thinking, it's not necessarily all that energetic and mobilizing. So the second pause is then about what attitude and mindset you bring to the, that energized state, that kind of working efficient state. And for me, it all centers around playfulness because playfulness to me is the optimal state as a human being. We are collaborative. We are experimental. We are curious. We are creative and we're happy to take calculated risks. We're happy to actually kind of, if you think back to being a kid and playfulness, playfulness as a kid is about taking small risks that you don't really know the outcome, but you're happy just to experiment with things. Um, as an adult, we've got to keep that mindset, but remove the game. You know, we're no longer playing with like Lego bricks or we're no longer playing with a cardboard box and pretending it's a house. We're now bringing that to our work. And if you can get those two pauses in alignment, so you regulate your state, you get breakthroughs and solutions, and then you mobilize yourself in a playfulness mindset. The move takes care of itself. You can apply whatever tactic, strategy, hack, tip, tool, it doesn't matter. Like it looks after itself. Um, so I'm not saying throw out all your self-help books and kind of managerial styles. You can still apply them. I don't, you know, I don't really care what style you apply at the end but you need to get those first two pauses right. And when things overwhelm us, that's what you need to do. So, so yeah, this, this pause, pause, move framework, it's super simple to, to, to use. That's what a lot of my coaching is around, kind of teaching people to regulate themselves and how to be playful. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a framework that people can, can pick up and use instantly. Yeah, and we'll make sure to link that framework or any resources that you'd uh, love sharing with our audience uh, in the show notes so they can know where to find them. Thank you so much for that summary. I think we've covered a lot um, in this um, episode. I think we could have just chatted for another two hours. So I, I hope that once we get you back on, uh, you'll accept the invitation to join us for a follow-up. I think there's lots more to talk about here. Um, I'll also be interested to see what our listeners think and what, what more questions they have for you. Uh, please check out Chris Marshall uh, in all of the resources that we're going to share in the show notes. Um, I really hope that you enjoyed this episode, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been, yeah, absolutely. And if the listeners desire me to come back, I will definitely come back. That is great to hear. Uh, for everyone who listened today, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you enjoyed this one. Please let us know what you think. And I hope to see you on the next one. Bye. <laughs>